0: Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, Communications Manager at MLI, and I'm joined today by Charles Burton, MLI Senior Fellow and one of Canada's foremost experts on all things related to China. Charles, how are you today?
1: It's good to be here, Brett.
0: Great. Well, excellent to have you in Ottawa on this chilly day. So there's a lot going on right now in East Asia, particularly with regards to China. But one story that's perhaps gone under the radar a little bit for some folks is the recent election in Taiwan. Now, you had the privilege of uh, being there as an election observer, uh, seeing democracy in action in uh, what is perhaps the most successful democracy in the region. So I wanted to uh, first just break down the election for us, let, let our listeners know kind of what happened, what was at stake. Give us a, a quick dive into the uh, the issues at hand with the Taiwanese election. <laughs>
1: Well, it certainly was a, a, an impressive demonstration of Taiwanese democracy. Um, there was certainly it was a very open election. There's been no accusations of irregularities in terms of ballot box stuffing or, or uh, vote buying. The positions of the parties were clearly laid out. And uh, despite the the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang Party's uh, presidential candidate, Han Guo-Yu, a- alleging all sorts of... Uh, corruption and skullduggery in the Democratic Progressive Party's uh, Tsai Ing-wen's campaign, um, um, Ms Tsai being the the uh, president of Taiwan who was re-elected. Um, at the end of the election, Mr. Han gave a very elegant concession speech which um, affirmed the legitimacy of the result and uh, expressed his continuing support for democracy, freedom and the rule of law in Taiwan. So, from that point of view, as an election, it, it shows the, the high degree of consolidation of democracy in uh, Taiwan. And in terms of the overall um, issues in the election, it was primarily about you know ideology and the commitment of the Democratic Progressive Party to democracy, human rights, and rule of law, and sovereignty against the nationalist desire to to build China's prosperity by um, establishing a, a, a closer relationship with the People's Republic of China, the the upshot of the election, I think, is an affirmation of Taiwanese identity, uh, as opposed to any notion that that people in Taiwan see themselves as Chinese and therefore have aspirations to uh, Taiwan's eventual uh, unification with the People's Republic of China, I think that strain of thought, which was represented by the by the uh, People First Party, the Qin Min Dang, um, who have a party platform that if the PRC became democratic, that negotiation of unification could proceed, that that is no longer a position uh, held by any significant constituency of the Chi- of the Taiwan population. So it's increasingly difficult for uh, the People's Republic of China regime to maintain that over time, um, Taiwan will be able to, as they put it, uh, rejoin the embrace of the motherland. So uh, the question really coming out of this election is how will China respond to a game-changing election which has consolidated the perspective that Taiwan will not accept the one country, two systems formula and Taiwan will not accept the 92 consensus that there's one China with two interpretations.
0: Yeah, and and I think you brought out a number of good points there, uh, especially that this election comes at a time of dynamic change and events in the region. As, as you know, there's, of course, the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, and the human rights situation involved with that. There's also the uh, coronavirus that's originated in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. So this, this election in Taiwan comes at a, a time of perhaps particular challenge for the regime in Beijing. So I wanted to also get a sense of how this is being received in China it seems as though they've, they've had to deal with a number of policy failures or perhaps losses or loss of face on the international stage for a number of different reasons. 2019 was certainly not a great year for, for the Chinese leadership, despite Xi Jinping further consolidating power in the country. With this now a, another perceived loss for Beijing, what do you think their next steps are? How might they perceive this situation with uh, the prospect of another four years of Tsai ing
1: Well, I think certainly the external factors that you refer to had a profound impact on the political dynamic in Taiwan. Uh, Last year, um, the Democratic Progressive Party had lost considerable support in district elections. And I think it was reflective of uh, disillusionment with Tsai Ing-wen's policies of attempting to diversify uh, Taiwan's economic dependence on the PRC with the Look South policy of trying to gain more markets in Southeast Asia. And in general, uh, the Chinese retaliation against the DPP's uh, repudiation of the 92 consensus, which was to cease negotiations, restrict tourism, and uh, pressure Taiwan through economic means, and discredit Ms. Tsai. But then, as you say, there was the Hong Kong movement against the extradition law, which had a strong demonstration effect in Taiwan. And certainly, if there had been any residual support for the idea of one country, two systems, what happened in Hong Kong put pay to that. And many of of the people in, in Taiwan that I spoke with while there monitoring the election referred to speeches by Xi Jinping on one country, two systems, which then uh, led to the the uh, populace becoming even more convinced that the best future for Taiwan lay with the Democratic uh, Progressive Party and unexpectedly not only brought back uh, Tsai Ing-wen with more votes than any political leader in Taiwan has ever had, but also allowed the DPP to maintain their majority in the legislative Yuan, which had previously been very much in question. So from that point of view, the PRC, I think, played a key role in ensuring the victory of uh, Tsai ing So the, the question really is, um, with the overseas Chinese community, uh, to a large extent, faltering in their support for the PRC regime as representing the aspirations of ethnic Chinese, how will China respond? Um, Clearly their policies towards Taiwan, attempts to um, sow disorder in society through um, manipulation of the media or fake news kinds of things or the use of economic incentives to try and and, uh, break up the unity of people in Taiwan has failed. Um, Economic pressure has failed. attempting the blandishments of the one country, two systems formula has also failed. So one wonders if the next step for China would be to give a demonstration to the people of Hong Kong and to the people of Taiwan and uh, reassure the constituency of Chinese inside the mainland who are more or less universally determined that, that Taiwan should become a province of the People's Republic of China, if China will in fact act. And there does seem to be some suggestion that one thing China might do to to make this kind of statement would be to attempt to retake the island of Jinmen, which is very close to to the city of Xiamen along the China coast. In fact, you can see the island from the campus of Xiamen University. So an area which was not traditionally part of Taiwan as a political entity, but you know, belonged really to Fujian. We'll see if, if China decides to, to do something. It seems to me that they recognize that sustaining the status quo in Taiwan is leading over time to a greater and greater consolidation of a Taiwan identity that excludes China from people's understanding of themselves. And in general, there seems to be a trend that people under 40 don't support the nationalists and are strongly supportive of the, of the Democratic Progressive Party and the, the, the minority parties that, that support even stronger uh, Taiwan identity or even independence. So that China may recognize that allowing the situation to fester actually works against their interests. And we have seen some personnel changes in the institutions in mainland China, which are responsible for bringing uh, Taiwan back into the embrace of the motherland through peaceful means. And it may indicate that China is going to take a stronger stand. So the euphoria in Taiwan of a successful demonstration of democracy and a, a wonderful transition of power based on, on the principles of a free and fair election could be answered by a, a very negative response out of the People's Republic of China, which, of course, uh, all of us who believe in freedom and democracy will be very disturbed to see if that's if that succeeds.
0: Hmm. We'll circle back to China again in just a moment, but uh, I think we'd be remiss also if we didn't touch on one other factor of the Taiwanese election. I think you quite correctly pointed out that there's been a sort of reverse effect for what uh, Beijing was trying to accomplish. Ended up sort of blowing up in their face, mm-hmm. and perhaps aided Tsai Ing-wen, who, if I understand correctly, won by about 20% of the, the vote margin, which I'm sure politicians in Canada seeing that result would be quite excited at the prospect of getting over 57%. Mm-hmm. So another factor in this, though, was uh, her competitor, Hong go who's, as I understand it, a, a figure who might in more ways than one compare with Donald Trump, both in terms of behavior and speech and kind of coming out of nowhere onto the political scene, you know, someone who has positions that are unorthodox even relative to their own party. What role do you think that Han played in terms of pushing perhaps Taiwanese people even further into the DPP camp, particularly on the issue of cross-strait relations?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that the comparison with Donald Trump is quite apt. Um, Mr. Han is a flamboyant unpredictable figure whose many of whose statements don't send stand the test of verification. So in other words, he says things which are not actually true. Um, and he has a very colorful private life and one could not have confidence that he would maintain the traditional positions of the nationalist or Guomindang party, or, you know, whether he would in fact, um, engage in some rash uh, uh, consolidation with the People's Republic of China with a view to engendering economic growth in in Taiwan. So he seemed um, to be a figure that over time, the mainstream of the Guomindang, the, the Ma Joe element, had less and less confidence in. And so the the kind of split in the Guomindang between the older um, uh, establishment and this What's called the Han wave of of people who were supportive of Han because he was a populist who appealed to you know the non elite element within Taiwan um, um, may have weakened the the nationalists in their support and he did win thirty eight point six percent of the vote mm-hmm. as you say opposed to fifty seven point one for Tsai Ing Wen but for a long time uh, in the course of the campaign there was a feeling that he could well have won the. The presidency so uh, i think i think certainly his himself as a as an individual was probably uh, not the best candidate for the guomindang in the end um and uh and one didn't see um the uh the unease that people had with Mr. Han translating into support for the People's First Party, James Song, mm-hmm. whose party received 4.3% of the popular vote, quite a drop from his uh, record in previous elections. So you know, I think Han is now uh, a, a, a historical figure for the KMT, mm-hmm. and the KMT now has to look at their, at their program and try and see if they can come up with a political program that will appeal more particularly to uh, up-and-coming younger generations of voters.
0: So with the Taiwan election said and done, with the the situation on the ground being that the DPP has control of both the executive and legislative yuans, what what does this mean for Canada? What does this mean for Canada-Taiwan relations? With Canada dealing with still strained relations with China, uh, the case regarding uh, the extradition of Meng Wanzhou is ongoing, and there's a that we could do a whole other podcast on just that topic alone, but uh, with strained relations between Canada and China, and with Taiwan representing a, a fairly large market economy in the region with similar values to Canada and uh, adherence to international uh, rules and norms. With all that said, is it, is it perhaps time for Canada to explore options to selectively re-engage with Taiwan? Well,
1: I think certainly it becomes harder and harder for us to continue to shun Taiwan when Taiwan has demonstrated that it's a vibrant democracy and that their government shares the values of our current liberal government. You know, a strong stress on the rights of gays and lesbians and gay marriage, a strong support for indigenous peoples, um, uh, promoting the middle class, So uh, certainly I think that uh, Mr. Trudeau and Ms. Tsai would have a a lot of uh, common um, values to express to each other. I mean, obviously the only reason that Canada shuns Taiwan is because of the insistence of the PRC that if we engage Taiwan in a more intense way or provide uh, diplomatic courtesies to Taiwan, that China will retaliate by not agreeing to things like free trade or sectoral trade, or or even retaliate by imposing more non-tariff barriers or tariff barriers on Canadian commodity exports to China, as they have done uh, in retaliation to the um, detention of, uh, of Meng Wanzhou. So uh, I think really Canada has to rethink how we're engaging with the PRC. Do we need to be complying with the demands of China, which is not just about Taiwan, but also that we shouldn't be standing up against the cultural genocide in Xinjiang by putting the names of Chinese officials on the Magnitsky list, uh, even though we've already um, sanctioned officials from Sudan, Venezuela, Soviet Union, and Saudi Arabia on that list. So not including any Chinese officials on the list is already sending a message on its own. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, other things that, China has been successfully engaging us on, such as uh, allowing the export of uh, restricted high technologies when we had the NORSAT and the, uh, and the XTERRA um, satellite systems and, and technology applicable to laser-directed um, weaponry that, that we agreed to transfer to China, or opening up our, our markets to Chinese state ownership of uh, mines and energy resources, mm-hmm. which uh, currently are restricted under a Harper-era policy so you know is it worth it to to continue to um, have a policy that amounts essentially to appeasement to China on non- trade matters when in fact we're not seeing the trade benefits that China promises in terms of diversification of the Canadian economy and and access to China's market to to grow Canadian prosperity and in fact as uh, my colleague here at the McDonald laurier Institute Chen Duanjie has pointed out, um, there is a misapprehension about the significance of our economic engagement with China in amounting to less than 8% of our external trade compared to 7, 78% or so to the United States. So the notion that that standing up to China or not cooperating with China's uh, demands that Canada should uh, betray our values of human rights, democracy, and rule of law to accommodate to the demands of an authoritarian one party state is somewhat in question. And perhaps, um, you know, there could be two aspects to this. One is China might retaliate and we might suffer loss of access to the Chinese market, but According to Chen Banjie's paper, because our exports to China are primarily commodities, agricultural commodities, and minerals and wood, potash, and so on, that we could readily do a readjustment and find alternative global markets for those things. Secondly, if we were to just not respond to Chinese pressure to compromise on political principles uh, with regard to Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and South China Sea, and China's support for rogue regimes and so on—that would we then gain respect out of China, and they would see that they that retaliating against us would not be effective, and so we might see an end to this kind of uh, behavior, such as hostage diplomacy, the the completely arbitrary and and brutal seizing of Kovrig favor, and the uh, punishment to Canada by by imposing um, uh, spurious non tariff barriers on our exports of canola seeds and you know for a period meat and difficulties in us uh, getting access to the chinese market for soybeans so you know uh, if if the the question really is if we decided to to be frank and and express our interest in taiwan by further engagement politically and economically with the taiwan regime um You know, could could this would this be a better policy for Canada than our current policy of uh, responding to the demands of an authoritarian one party state that insists that uh, we should not be uh, uh, open to to normal people to people and government government interaction with Taiwan?
0: Yeah, and I think an important point that you mentioned there in reference to that recent paper by Duan Ji Chen is this notion that coercion only works from China if. Uh, we're willing to be coerced. So yes. if, if we rather signal that China is more likely to get its way by behaving in adherence to international rules and norms and engaging with Canada in, in a much similar fashion to other states, if we can encourage China to go down that route rather than the coercive route, we're more likely to end up having more positive engagement with China in the future. So it's not only to, uh, to our own benefit and our own national interests, but also, in effect, to China's benefit as well.
1: Yes, and I think in general, to the maintenance of the rules-based international order that has been so important to Canada's uh, role in the world and maintaining our prosperity. And certainly, I would like to see Canada taking the lead with like-minded powers, um, hopefully in harmony with the United States to try and and, uh, bring China into compliance with the promises that China has made to the WTO and the UN. And I, I don't think that that is a, a lost cause. I think that um, we've simply allowed ourselves to be um, manipulated through a sophisticated engagement and a degree of tolerance of of co-opting activities by the Chinese regime against uh, Canadian business and political elites that uh, is contrary to our Canadian norms and values. So you know it's really a question of of um, figuring out where we went wrong with China, and taking the appropriate policy steps to to turn things back down round to rights. And certainly the Canadian House of Commons China Committee may be uh, the forum into which we can. Uh, shed some light on how our policy has been formulated and and implemented and uh, reassess and and do things in a way which would allow Canada to realize its interests domestically and internationally in a way which uh, serves both our prosperity and uh, our values. Mm -hmm.
0: So um, I wanted to now turn back to some issues that are perhaps not directly within Canada's wheelhouse. As you may know, the story that has people overly concerned, perhaps, is the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Um, This this virus that has originated in Wuhan uh, has led to the shutdown of a number of cities in the Hebei province, has uh, led to a number of uh, flights and transits to and within China from China being restricted or downright canceled. Um, It's also led to responses from the WHO, as well as organizations like the International Civil Aviation Organization. Their response globally has been significant. There are concerns that the the situation could be reminiscent of what was observed with regards to the SARS virus. But a a subtext to all of this, as as the the global community tries to work together to, to stop this disease, is the political relationship between Taiwan and China yet again. As our listeners might appreciate, Taiwan is not allowed to formally engage with uh, UN institutions because China has asserted that they not be allowed to do so. This is despite the fact that Taiwan has historically either observed or participated in some capacity in organizations like ICAO and the WHO. um, But this is a purely political response from Beijing in relation to Tsai Ing-wen's DPP being in charge uh, in Taiwan. With this going on, with, the, with ICAO even blocking people on Twitter who, who disagree with their line on Taiwan, with the WHO not providing information directly to Taiwan, this potentially creates a gap in the international system, a gap that disease doesn't care necessarily about the politics of one country or another, but this gap could potentially lead to a scenario in which individuals transiting to Taiwan could be carriers of the disease and because of a lack of information transfer, potentially a mistake or miscalculation could be made and the disease could be spread more widely than it otherwise would. So I, I wanted to get your comments and thoughts on this. Uh, within within the decision-making in Beijing, is it is it accurate to say that their political interests are taking precedent over uh, global human health?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that if you look at Taiwan, that the government of Taiwan is in effective control of the territory of mm-hmm. Taiwan, and therefore that should be the, the government that represents Taiwan at these important multilateral um, organizations. And so China, by banning Taiwan from full participation in the WHA and WHO, and for that matter, as you say, the ICAO, ICAO um, you know does endanger uh, human life. And China's political policy with regard to Taiwan being blocked from participating in the health organizations could lead to loss of human life you know, in Taiwan, in China, and even in Canada, because of a lack of, uh, of uh, transfer of timely and accurate information uh, to that regime. The other aspect that's troubling is, of course, that we have such difficulty in trusting any information that comes out of the mm-hmm. People's Republic of China because they have a an established record of dissembling on critical information and suppressing the facts or distorting the facts to serve their political interests. So, you know, there's been suggestion that the response to to the um, coronavirus. Uh, um, new coronavirus was was slow because the government of Wuhan did not want to disrupt us, an important provincial congress. Well, I mean, this is obviously uh, a, a terrible uh, uh, state of affairs if a government is not protecting the health of its citizens because they're trying to, to bolster le- the legitimacy of a political regime. So from that point of view, we do have concerns about... Uh, China and particularly about China's response to Taiwan in this matter, and I think that um, there is a general per- perception among the citizens of China that the regime has not been responding as well as other democratic regimes have to this uh, awful health crisis that we're currently facing. A lot of suspicion about uh, distribution of uh, of surgical masks and so on, whether the the party are. are Hoarding them for themselves, that kind of uh, that kind of petty stuff, and so it, it it does impact further on the confidence of Chinese people in the regime. If you're seeing um, large scale uh, loss of life that is attributed, rightly or wrongly, to mm. the uh, the way that the Chinese Communist Party regime has been managing the the uh, outbreak of this illness.
0: Yeah, and in some ways, democracies are uh, uniquely privileged in that. The legitimacy of a government is not usually tied to the legitimacy of a regime overall. Quite so. Yeah. So if we don't like uh, the government in Ottawa someday, Canadians get routine chances to throw them on their bums and, and get some new guys in for some time, which which then means that the democratic system itself isn't challenged. However, in China, the, the legitimation model is very complex. As you know, there's, there's a relationship between the performance of the economy and how people relate to the government, but there's all sorts of other elements that are at play with how uh, people perceive uh, the, the regime in Beijing to or not to be uh, legitimate. So is it possible that with this, uh, with this coronavirus, with the pressures that are existing on the regime, with the protests in Hong Kong, and all manner of other global pressures, in, including while the US and, and China have signed a trade deal, which again, we could fill another full podcast talking yes. about that, uh, there are still uh, there are still new sanctions on China that weren't there four years ago. So with with all of these pressures, is there any chance, do you think, that China might be discouraged from taking the hard line that it has been taking over the last few years?
1: Well, I think certainly... Um, you know, one aspect of this has been a lack of freedom of the press mm-hmm. and extensive censorship of social media. So I think here in Canada, we're confident that the reports that we're getting on the spread of the disease are in fact accurate and the number of people who have it and the mode of transmission of of this uh, of this, uh bacteria is uh, is being reported accurately and you know experts are speaking out frankly about their their understanding of the nature of this thing and its origins and spread whereas in china people don't have that impression and we are seeing extensive censoring of social media including communications you know between people and and as you say these rumors that experts medical experts are, um, are giving out information about the nature of this uh, of this epidemic, if it's such a thing in China, uh, that's at odds with the official line. So it does help. Dis- it does discredit the the credibility of the Chinese regime and could have lead to, at the end of the day, people feeling that the Chinese Communist Party one party dictatorship over China is not the best government for them. But you know, objectively speaking, we don't see a lot of strong dissident forces yeah. in China today, or alternative political leaders, or alternative discourses, because those are so uh, strictly suppressed. Um, but you know, political change can happen very suddenly. Uh, you know, as someone who was a professor of political science at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, um, I think more or less up to the last minute we were all convinced the soviet union was a strong and consolidated regime that posed a significant threat to to the united states and might win the cold war it didn't take long for us to realize that it was really a house of cards that that readily collapsed and so whether one could see a, a rapid regime transition in china as a result of the sort of emperor has no clothes phenomena where people realize that their government is not a good government that is genuinely working for the good of their people, and that this has been expressed through through the government's response to this uh, coronavirus uh, remains to be seen, but I, I really couldn't rule it out. Yeah,
0: you know, it's true. It's hard to look into the crystal ball when it comes to the stability of authoritarian regimes. Um, one last question for you, and, and this relates back to to ICAO and the WHO and Canada-Taiwan relations. Um, Given given the situation with the coronavirus, the potential gaps that are being created as a result of Beijing politicizing uh, uh, Taiwan's access to these important international institutions, uh, is there a role for Canada to play? Should Should we be advocating for Taiwan's participation? I mean, for instance, the ICAO is actually headquartered in Montreal, So does Canada have a responsibility to be calling out Beijing's politicization?
1: Oh, I think so. I think that, you know, Canada and and all the the other powers of the world um, should be standing up and insisting that China stop blocking Taiwan's participation in these institutions that are designed for the overall social good. In other words, you really need Taiwan at the table when they decide what airplanes are able to fly in what lanes at what time. And similarly with with a, a pandemic disease, Taiwan should be receiving as timely information from the international authority as uh, soon as possible so that they can respond appropriately. So I, I agree with you that ICAO is headquartered in Montreal and that Canada could be taking a more aggressive stance. With regard to some of the actions of ICAO, particularly the the Twitter censorship, which is just ridiculous, mm-hmm. that people who ra- even raise the idea that ICAO should should be more open to full participation by Taiwan are, are being cut off from the debate. Um, you know, it's in our interest and the interests of the world to see um, a, a government that controls a, a significant piece of land and a critical part of the geostrategic order uh, and, and uh, 23 million uh, human beings, that they should be given the, the right to to participate in in decision-making relating to matters that impinge on them and, and the countries round about. And the fact that Canada has not taken any strong stance publicly on this, I think is a failure of our government to act in the interests of, of uh, of the safety of human beings on the planet.
0: Hmm. Well, with that, here's hoping that the government of Canada takes a little bit of a stand on that. here's hoping the government of Canada uh, takes some effort to try to re-engage with Taiwan as it should have probably been doing years and years ago, but now there's perhaps a unique opportunity. And here's to hoping that the uh, the coronavirus goes away without, uh, without much further incident for the sake of all those affected. But uh, Charles, thank you very much for your time and for your tour de force of all these issues related to China, Taiwan, and the region.
1: It's great to do it with you again, Brett. Hope we can do it again soon.
0: I'm sure we will. Thanks, Charles.